All right, so thanks uh, for, to the New Insights Project for welcoming uh, my desire to comment on this paper, and thank you, Hans, for um, putting up with me as a commenter. Um, so Hans is exploring and critiquing a fine-tuning argument, and the version of the fine-tuning argument that he's focused on um, goes as follows. It holds that given that several features of our universe need to be fine-tuned um, in order for the universe to be life-permitting, in other words, given that the life-permitting range for certain features is very narrow compared to the total range, uh, the fact that the universe is life-permitting is very strong evidence for the existence of God. Um, so, more or less following Hans' lead, we can uh, characterize this argument in symbols in the following way. So, let N stand for the proposition uh, the universe is nice, in other words, that it's life-permitting. F stands for some fine-tuning datum. Uh, for example, the fact that given the laws of physics, the initial conditions of the universe must be fine-tuned, in other words, in that very narrow range, in order for N to hold. And we'll let G stand for the proposition God exists. Um, and in this case, for sake of discussion, to ignore multiverse complications, we'll just suppose that the negation of G is equivalent to the naturalistic single universe hypothesis. So um, we're supposing um, that it's either God or you know, standard kind of single universe naturalism. So given these abbreviations, uh, the fine-tuning argument, the FTA, can be put as follows. Um, the epistemic probability that the universe is nice, given God's existence, is much, much greater. That's what these two symbols mean, um, and Robin Collins uses, uses this. Uh, it's much, much, much greater than the epistemic probability that the universe is nice, uh, given the non-existence of God, where this probability function is the one that it would be rational to have after updating on the fine-tuning datum. So I suspect that tomorrow we'll hear some, you know, maybe some quibbles or problems with this way of expressing the argument, but that's how it often gets expressed. Um, that's the argument that Halverson has his sights on, and so uh, we'll work with that. So Halverson wants to maintain that the fine-tuning datum doesn't justify this inequality. doesn't justify thinking that the probability of n given g is much, much greater than the probability of n given not g. And he looks at three different types of fine-tuning arguments that each raise conceptually distinct issues. So the first is a fine-tuning argument which is focused on the initial conditions of the universe. And what's interesting about that is there we have a probability measure for those initial conditions which is given to us by physics which can be used to quantify the degree of fine-tuning. Um, second, he looks at a fine-tuning argument focused on the constants, that figure in the laws of physics. And there, physics doesn't supply any kind of probability measure, so the fine-tuning argument relies on what uh, Collins calls the restricted principle of indifference in order to quantify the degree of fine-tuning. And then finally, he briefly considers the fine-tuning argument that's focused on the general form of the laws themselves. And what's distinctive about that is it seems that there's no uh, obvious way to quantify the degree of fine-tuning, either using anything supplied by physics or the restricted principle of indifference. So, um, Halverson first argues, uh, looking at the first case, uh, where physics does supply a probability measure, Halverson raises worries for uh, this term right here. So he thinks that even if uh, the probability measure supplied by physics gives us reason for thinking that the probability of in given atheism, given not G, is really, really low, um, that, that we're not going to have good reason for thinking that the probability of N given G is high. Uh, and the basic claim in that first uh, major section of the paper is that 
the only determinate stance that could be justified is one that sets these two terms equal to one another and is just equal to the probability that's supplied by uh, physics, by the measure given to us by physics. Um, but then he has further worries uh, for um, the claim that, uh, that this is high. And then when he looks at the other versions of the fine-tuning argument, he has worries for the justification of the claim that the probability of life permitting universe given atheism is very low um, once he moves to the second two types of fine-tuning arguments. Um, so I'm going to, Halverson, for the reasons he gives and which I'll summarize in a moment, is very pessimistic about the prospects of a fine-tuning argument. Um, I'm much more optimistic about the prospects for a philosophically cogent fine-tuning argument, so I want to focus on three issues uh, and raise some worries for Halverson's arguments for pessimism. Uh, so the three issues I'm going to focus on, first is how we should construe or interpret the probability measures supplied by physics. Uh, second is how we should think about the probability of God's aiming for life. And third is uh, some problems concerning the use of the principle of indifference in the fine-tuning argument. So that's where I'll focus my comments. All right, so first, how to construe the probabilities supplied by physics. So just so you can track, we're here. The laws of physics do not themselves determine the probability for the initial state of the universe, but are compatible, or sorry, they don't determine the initial state of the universe, uh, but they're compatible with many different initial states. And uh, the fine-tuning argument for the initial conditions says that the epistemic probability of a life-permitting initial state conditioned on atheism is much, much smaller than the epistemic probability of a life-permitting state conditioned on theism. And as I already mentioned, unlike other versions of the fine-tuning argument, which focus on the fine-tuning of specific constants in the laws or on the general form of the laws themselves, the FTA focused on the initial conditions can turn to physics in order to quantify the degree of fine-tuning, and in particular to determine the relevant probability of n conditional on atheism. For physics itself assigns a probability measure mu, that Greek letter is mu for those who might have forgotten the Greek they never took. Um, so physics assigns this probability measure mu to the set of possible initial conditions, and this measure assigns a very, very mind-boggling small probability to the universes having an, initi an initial configuration, which is uh, one that is compatible with the kind of complexity that could give rise to life, complexity, stability, etc. So a lot hinges on how we're going to interpret this probability measure mu that is given to us by physics. And on Halverson's presentation, contemporary physics supports mu as the measure of the unconditional objective chance of possible initial states. And given this interpretation of mu, the fine-tuning argument does appear to be massively confused. To see why, suppose that according to mu, the objective chance of n, the universe being life permitting, uh, is some value v, where v is incredibly, incredibly small, approximately zero, if that makes any sense. Um, so this deliverance of physics arguably does justify this claim, you know, saying that the probability of a life-permitting universe given atheism is very, very low. So the proponent of the FTA can legitimately maintain uh, that conditional on atheism, life is extremely, extremely unlikely. But if mu reports the actual objective chances of n, then the, the deliverances of physics equally support the claim that conditional on theism, the probability of a life-permitting universe is also vanishingly small. If we accept contemporary physics, then we accept that the objective chance of n is v. And according to the principal principle, 
epistemic probabilities ought to conform to known objective chances, assuming that we have no inadmissible evidence. And since there's no reason to think that God's existence would be inadmissible evidence in Lewis's sense, uh, there's no reason why the probability of n given g should depart from the objective chance. It ought to be just equal to v, and thus very, very low as well, which means this inequality doesn't hold. In other words, the probability of n conditional on theism is no greater or smaller than the prob probability of n conditional on atheism. Both are vanishingly small. Simply put, once God chooses physical laws that assign probability v to n, God brings it about that n is exceedingly improbable. And the mere fact that God's on the scene, as it were, doesn't justify assigning a probability to n that exceeds v. So I agree with Halverson, one, uh, that this version of the FTA is doomed, that if, if, if we affirm that mu gives us the objective chance of n. I also agree with him that um, Collins and others often uh, mistakenly, perhaps, or somewhat confusingly, um, present mu as giving us the objective chance of n. Um, but I don't think there's any reason why the proponent of the FTA should affirm that mu tells us the objective chance of possible initial configurations. Rather, the proponent of the FTA should hold that mu is the measure of objective chance that's supported by the best physical theory that respects prevailing scientific paradigms. Physical theories that respect prevailing scientific paradigms must, of course, be naturalistic. They cannot, example, invoke divine intentions or axiarchic principles and the explanations they provide. So mu ought to be construed as the best account of the chances of various initial conditions if naturalism and other aspects of prevailing scientific paradigms is assumed. In other words, mu should at most constrain this term here, the probability of n given not g. There's no reason to think that mu describes the objective chance if we allow for the possibility that divine intentions may play some role in explaining which of the possible initial states obtained. To insist that mu be understood as specifying the objective chances would in this context, I think, just beg the question. Since mu is a measure that emerges from a scientific enterprise uh, that takes naturalism to be a constraint on acceptable scientific explanations. Okay, so I've suggested that we should not affirm that mu specifies the objective chance of n, of, of n, but should instead affirm that mu specifies the objective chance if atheism is correct, where that's at most what we should affirm. Now, my sense from Halverson's paper is that he would have the following, uh, raise the following protest to my proposal. So now I'm envisioning how Halverson might react. Well, initially it appears that the proponent of the FTA is someone who accepts the findings of science and who argues that the findings of science provide evidence for God. But on closer inspection, the proponent of the FTA cannot be someone who accepts the findings of science. For science says that the unconditional objective chance of n is remarkably low, while the proponent of the FTA denies this and says that it is remarkably low only if God does not exist. Thus, the proponent of the FTA is someone who contests the probabilistic laws of science. The FTA then is not a scientific argument, rather it's an argument that contemporary science is mistaken. So is this envisioned protest correct? Does refusing to affirm that mu specifies the, specifies the unconditional chance of n amount to contesting the probabilistic laws established by physics? I don't think so for two reasons. So first, the metaphysical status of the laws of physics is contentious and it's not something that physics itself settles. And on some views of the laws of nature, it's perfectly coherent to affirm an exception to a law without denying the correctness of the law. For example, if the laws merely tell us how nature operates in the absence of non-natural influences, 
then the proponent of the FTA can coherently affirm both that the laws of physics that imply probability measure mu are correct, and that mu does not tell us the initial probability of n, since there were non-natural influences on the initial conditions of the universe. Second, even if the best physical theory does support the conclusion that the probability of n was remarkably low, I don't think we should count this as an established scientific fact. Um, so the fine-tuned initial condition that Robin, Co Robin Collins focuses on most particularly is the extraordinarily low entropy of the early universe. And the claim that this state is extremely improbable relies on the assumption that the same principles of statistical, statistical mechanics that determine the probability of the various states that unfold from the initial conditions also applies to the initial conditions itself. Um, while that assumption may be reasonable, it's not one that's empirically testable or confirmable since the initial state only happened once. Um, so at best, the claim that mu um, gives us the objective chance of the initial conditions is one that is a reasonable supposition, um, supposing that there's no non-natural or divine intentions or other sorts of entities beyond the scope of nor normal science uh, that might have affected the chances of n. Um, it's not some established fact of science. Okay, so that's the most, uh, the longest topic, because I think that's the most central point that Halverson is, is trying to get at, but uh, let me move to number two here, the probability of God's aiming for life. So even if I'm right that it would beg the question against theism to take it for granted that mu specifies the objective chance of n, Halverson raises a further worry that's applicable uh, to this version of the fine-tuning argument as well as to the others. He thinks that none of us can have a rational prior probability for the claim that God would act to bring about n. And if there's no rational assignment for the probability of n conditional on g, uh, then it might seem to follow that we cannot rationally maintain that this term is much greater than that term. But to hold that this inequality is correct, um, it's not necessary to assign any pre precise value to the probability of n given g. Um, if indeed this term right here is remarkably low, as many maintain, then to maintain that this inequality holds, it would be sufficient to say that the probability of n given g is, say, at least one out of a trillion. Um, initially, it seems to me that this very modest position is reasonable, maybe even reasonably required. Um, and this is because the existence of conscious creatures capable of creative and loving action is a great good. And there's therefore strong prima facie reason for preferring universes capable of producing and sustaining such creatures to universes that are not so capable. Of course, God will be privy to other sorts of reasons and considerations that are beyond our ken. Um, but nonetheless, ascertaining a strong prima facie reason to favor n surely justifies assigning a reasonably healthy value to the probability of n given g, one that's well over one out of a trillion. Now, no doubt some will maintain that any determinate stance about this value, even one so modest as to say it's at least one trillionth, is unjustified given um, the evidential situation we find ourselves in. You know, skeptical theists come to mind. Um, and the challenge to this camp would be to come up with a principled reason for not assigning any value to this term uh, that wouldn't spread into other forms of skepticism about our inductive practices. So I'm not optimistic that there is such a well principled reason for not assigning any value to this, um, but I don't have time to argue for that here. But I guess my question for Hans is whether he's in the resolutely non-committal camp, and if so, what his reason would be. All right, so last issue is uh, problems facing the use of the principle indifference of indifference in uh, the fine-tuning argument. 
So of the several worries about the fine-tuning argument that Halverson raises, it seems to me that the most troubling worries are the ones he raises for the use of the principle of indifference in the fine-tuning argument. The principle of indifference is invoked in the version of the fine-tuning argument that's focused on the physical constants that figure in the laws of physics. So unlike the FTA for the initial conditions of the universe, physics does not supply any sort of probability measure for the objective chance of any given constant falling in the life-permitting range. And without a scientifically established probability measure, the proponent of the FTA relies on some version of the principle of indifference in order to establish the epistemic probability of N conditional on atheism. So in this context, the principle of indifference says, roughly, that in the absence of any evidence bearing on the value of some physical constant C, our probability density function across the range of possible values for that physical constant ought to be flat. And this results in our assigning equal probability to any two subranges of equal magnitude. And that only seems reasonable um, given the fact that uh, we don't have any evidence you know, that would bear on favoring one subrange over the other. If they're the same magnitude, we should assign them the same probability. So Halverson raises multiple worries about the FTA's appeal to this indifference principle. And one worry has to do not with the principle itself, but with its selective employment and the FTA. The proponent of the FTA uses the principle of indifference to assign a probability value to N conditional on atheism, but it doesn't use the principle of indifference to assign this probability, the probability of N conditional on theism. Halverson finds this asymmetry objectionable, um, but I think it's perfectly reasonable. God's existence would be evidence that favors the life-permitting ranges for the constants over the non-life-permitting ranges, and the principle of indifference only applies in the absence of any evidence that favors some subranges over others. But there is a more difficult worry, and that's concerning the use, um, that's concerning uh, the question of whether a probability density function counts as flat over a given range, and the fact that whether a probability density function is flat depends on how we parameterize uh, the range. So there's a problem of parameterization sensitivity that's powerfully illustrated by the mystery cube example. So uh, the mystery cube example is we have a random cube. Uh, we know side length is somewhere between zero and one. And we might think that, um, well, we should assign for any you know, range of side length of, of equal magnitude, we should assign it equal probability. So uh, the, the chance of it being having a side length between seven eighths and one ought to be one eighth. Uh, that's one eighth of the space. Uh, the problem is, that um, if instead we measured the range by volume rather than by length, uh, this probability density function wouldn't look flat and unbiased. It would look very biased, favoring um, as though we're favoring uh, smaller volumes rather than larger volumes because there's not a linear relationship between length and volume. If we arranged it flat by volume, so we were measuring cube size in terms of volume rather than length, the same hypothesis, which only takes up one-eighth of the possibility here, would take up about one-third here. If instead we looked, instead of looking at volume, which is length cube, cubed, if we looked at, uh, this should be length to the tenth right here, if we looked at length to the tenth, uh, this same hypothesis for the size of the cube would now look like it um, is extremely probable, uh, about 75%. And of course, we can make this sliver arbitrarily large, uh, by changing the parameter in relevant ways. Okay, so um, without any evidence that the parameterization that seems natural to us when we measure the probability of these constants is better, 
than other parameterizations that would lead to a high probability assignment for n. So, you know, the same worry applies here, change the parameter in certain ways, and you can make this look uh, really large in your application of the indifference principle. Um, without any reason to think that our parameterization is correct, why should we place confidence in a low probability assignment for n? So to my knowledge, no one has cracked this problem of parameterization sensitivity. Nonetheless, I think there's reason to think that we're not justified in simply dismissing the fine-tuning argument um, on account of this problem. So imagine that I'm on a cruise in the open ocean, and with my binoculars, I perceive some really strange phenomena on the horizon. I see these sprays of water intermittently being, you know, large sprays of water being sprayed up into the air. Um, I think it's plausible that uh, these sprays are the result of human activity, but it also seems plausible to me that maybe there's some natural process, underwater volcano perhaps, or something that's causing it. And I really know nothing about the natural processes that might give rise to it, but it seems plausible. I then notice there's a repetitive pattern to the sprays. Three short sprays, three long sprays, three short sprays, and a pause before the pattern repeats. And this pattern in Morse code spells out SOS, the universal distress signal. Clearly, the fact that the sprays conform to this pattern strongly confirms the hypothesis that the sprays are human-made. And the natural way to explain uh, why it confirms this hypothesis is that such a pattern is much more likely if the sprays are human-made than if they were the result of natural processes. But know that this judgment of comparative probability implicitly relies on something like the principle of indifference. Since I know nothing about what natural processes might produce sprays or what patterns are likely to emerge as a result. This means that the parameterization sensitivity problem applies here as much as it does in the FTA. And since in the spray case, the, the inference is clearly warranted, uh, we should be suspicious of dismissing the FTA because of the parameterization sensitivity problem. One final point is basically this. Um, suppose that I'm wrong and suppose that uh, because of parameterization and sensitivity, um, putting significant trust in our standard inferential practices uh, is reasonable only if we have good reason for thinking that our parameterization is the right one. I mean, I think a general non-skeptical kind of position gives us good reason to think that our natural way of parameterizing the space is reliable because our inductive practices depend on our natural parameterization being uh, a reliable guide to inductive inference. But if one's skeptical and one wants to say, uh, no, you know, there's no justification for assigning this a low probability, what's the upshot of that? Uh, it seems to me that the upshot isn't that the fine-tuning argument can just be dismissed um, because it seems that the proper response is to be agnostic on the probability of this term here and thus agnostic on the question of whether we have remarkably good evidence for theism. And if you're agnostic on the question of whether we have remarkably good evidence for theism, it seems that's not coherently compatible um, with being an atheist. It seems that at best, uh, this objection to the fine-tuning argument um, warrants resisting going all the way to theism and stopping at agnosticism, but it doesn't warrant uh, dismissing the fine-tuning argument and staying comfortable um, and confident in atheism. Thanks. So uh, thank you, John, and uh, thank you to all of you uh, for those of you who diligently read and are, will be giving me feedback on this paper. Uh, so let me start by saying, so it, you think it's kind of odd to, you know, I'll come to a philosophy of religion, uh, a conference about religious epistemology, and I'll speak negatively about arguments for um, claims of religion. But actually, there's an there's a ulterior motive here that I'll explain, because actually the conclusion, I think, is in good shape, except after hearing Keith talk earlier, I think, 
you know, I'll, I'll probably have to tell you, I, uh, you know, do I, am I a theist? Well, I'm not sure anymore, right? So I, I um, have certain commitments in my life or something like this, so I'll, I'll have to rework the, the wording. But, so I'm not concerned with the conclusion here. Actually, my, my motivation primarily springs here out of trying to develop what I think would be a, an adequate theistic approach to scientific knowledge, okay? And so I think my, my deeper motive here is to not have an inconsistent view that combines theism and scientific knowledge. And I think that the, the way the fine-tuning argument has been put in recent years is putting forward a version of theism that is ultimately incoherent and that won't survive. So essentially the picture, and this is the, the I'll start with the broadest brushstroke and then descend down to some of the specifics that John mentioned. The broadest brushstrokes is any view of theism that has God as one thing among others is going to ultimately break down. It's ultimately going to be incoherent, I think. And so if your arguments for God are treating God like, say, the way we treated knowledge of the planet Neptune, right? So we have a system, before Neptune is discovered, we have a system that has a scientific description, except there are minor anomalies. And we try to eliminate those anomalies by adding an extra postulate. We say, look, there's probably something else in the background there. And once we add that thing into the description, then the anomalies vanish. That's a very good scientific methodology. It's been very successful in the past. That, I think, is not the right way to think of religious epistemology. We don't add God into a pre-established system in order to fix certain anomalies and to smooth out our probabilities that have gone wrong. So the way this comes to play in fine, the fine-tuning argument is I don't think we should think of the probabilities supplied by physics as somehow fishy because they're making wrong predictions, but that if you add God in as a new variable, they make the right prediction. Because, in fact, if the probabilities of physics are epistemically reliable, then a theist ought to believe that those probabilities reflect the way God created the universe. Okay, so that's my motivation here. If, so this is, this is an argument based on a supposition that the probabilities of contemporary physics are adequate. And so imagine that the, the current physics is an oracle, and you hear these are what the probabilities are, and now you have two options if you're a theist. You can just say, I reject those probabilities. They don't match my theistic beliefs. And that's not atypical, especially in the United States, right? So in the United States, it's not atypical at all for theists to look at the deliverances of science and say, that doesn't match my theism. There goes so much the worse for science. The other attitude that theists can take is to say, I'm going to trust that oracle, I'm going to listen, and then believe that God created the world in such a way that that's true. And so that's the way I want to try to understand fine-tuning data. Okay, so now to descend, um, to address John's comments. So how should a theist conceive of the objectives of science? So is, should we think of the probabilities supplied by current physics as merely you know, probabilities under some constraint that many theists would find very hostile, the constraint of supposition that God doesn't exist? So this also corresponds, that idea corresponds directly to the idea that, again, especially in the United States, you'll jokingly hear, well, not jo they don't jokingly say this, but theists will say, you know, science is provisionally atheistic, and the idea is if we could fix science ultimately, if theists could fix science, it wouldn't be like that. It would be very different. So I think that's, I think that's a mistake. I think science is naturalistic in principle, but naturalism isn't provisional atheism. Naturalism, I claim a theist should think in natural science, is understanding the world that God created as a self-enclosed system that God created. And so then, the probabilities of physics, if you're a theist, you should think, 
as the other laws of physics, if God created, that's what God put into place. Now, what, if, what do you do if you find a probabilistic law that doesn't match your theistic presuppositions? Well, as a good empiricist always does, you try to update your presuppositions. So that's what I think we're supposed to do with fine-tuning data. Okay, let me just speak directly, though, to one, to one analogy that was in the paper, and just to make this a little bit more clear. So take, it's easy in the case of probabilities like we get in, say, quantum mechanics. So if you look in, in quantum mechanics and say you have a system where it's described as having a 50% chance of coming out spin up or 50% chance of coming out spin down. Now, I don't think a theist would say, but that's on the supposition of atheism, right? And so if we had theistic quantum mechanics, we might have different probabilities. Because look, God certainly probably likes spin up better than spin down, right? I mean, heaven is this way. So we're actually it's going to be like probability 51% spin up and 49% spin down. So of course we wouldn't do that. So why would we do that in the case of cosmology, though? You might say, because we have independent knowledge. We have knowledge that God likes nice universes. Really? So why aren't there more roses in our universe if God likes nice universes? Right? And why isn't there less pain? And so on. Okay, so let's be careful with the data we think that's forced on us by theistic belief. Okay, so now on to the second point. So I'm going I'm to speak to three points. The first point was, how do we construe the probabilities of contemporary physics? And I think the proper theistic view of that should be when you approach natural science that it's not atheistic science. It's science about the natural world, the natural world created by God, if you're a theist. Why be non-committal? Second point, why be non-committal about probabilities of the form, conditional probabilities, the probability that the universe is nice, conditional on God's existence? Um, I am resolutely non-committal about those. I mean, I don't, I of course have presuppositions like everyone else, so I have conditional probabilities on God's existence. In fact, probably most of my probabilities are conditional in that way in some sense. But one thing we've learned, I think, very clearly in the past, especially 300 years, is we're often wrong about those probabilities. And so, you know, what would you guess would be the way that biological development occurred before going out and doing experiment, if you just presuppose God exists? How do you think God would create biological species? I think we know the answer now. The best answer is we don't really know until we go look. Okay, so the number one reason for being resolutely non-committal for me about things like that is empiricism. And empiricism that's motivated by theism, saying God can create the world the way he wants to create. God can create the laws of nature the way he wants to create. Okay, so let's stop being so a prioristic about this and deciding we know what the probabilities are. Let's do empirical science. That's my reason for being resolutely non-committal about those. Now, finally, on to the, the last point that I will address here, this sensitivity to parameters. There's something a little bit deeper, I think, going on here that I, I want to get across before opening up the discussion. Okay, so I, let's go ahead and grant for the sake of argument, which I think there's lots of dispute about this, but let's grant that there are natural variables. So in other words, let's grant that, say, in the magic cube case, tip, in typical cases, there's one parameter that's more natural than the other, and that parameter we should use to, use to um, apply the principle of indifference. Let's just grant that for the sake of argument. If that's not true, then the fine-tuning argument doesn't work. Okay, now, suppose theism is true. And there's two possibilities under the supposition of theism. One possibility is the natural variables are metaphysically necessary. That is, they had to be the way they are by metaphysical necessity. Now, I'm going to leave that aside because that's, that's, the waters are too deep for me. Okay, so I'm just going to, you know, you all can tell me why that might be the case. 
Let's suppose that's not the case. And I actually would suspect it's not the case. Why? For one reason, because we discover empirically what the natural variables are. Right? So we, we don't sit in our offices with the doors closed and windows closed and think, what are the natural variables? What are the natural properties? We do empirical science. So let's suppose that it's contingent what the natural variables are. Okay, then if you're a theist, what that means is the natural variables are the way they are because of the way God created, once again. Now, if God is not a deceiver, then God, of course, would create them so that if, if the natural variables are the ones that are natural for us, that work for our cognitive structure, then God would, of course, create the universe in such a way that, that he would choose the natural variables that we should epistemically adjust our credences to. Okay, so now, the natural, so here's a little argument then. Physics is currently formulated in terms of, let's call a, na a natural variable hostile if its range of life-permitting values is very small. Okay. Physics is currently formulated in terms of hostile natural parameters. If God created then the true natural parameters, if physics is correct, are hostile. If God created and the natural variables are not those ones in current physics, then current physics is wrong. Okay, so someone who supports the fine-tuning argument has a decision there to make. Now, one can say, yes, what would happen is if we all accepted the fine-tuning argument, imagine the thought experiment that the, the fine-tuning advocates were massively successful, and tomorrow, everyone who ever thought about this accepted the fine-tuning argument and believed God exists. What would physics look like then? And I think the obvious answer is, physics would say the chance of life is 100%, because that's the way God wanted it to be, or at least it would be extremely likely. But that's not what current physics tells us. What I think is, even if you believe God exists, you should, your physics of tomorrow should be the way it is today. Your probability measure over initial conditions should be exactly what we're told by our current physical theories. Thanks.